pee on me. Matt, are you done pooping? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh... Yeah, pretty much. Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 143 of the SLS cast. Yes, this is of course the Indian Telugu film episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that there is a 2004 Indian Telugu film titled 143. That's right. It's a wonderful little film about how fate reunites the lost lovers Sidhu and Sanjana. I've actually never seen it, so I don't know if it's a lovely little film. But generally received positive reviews, apparently. And with that little bit of uh, Indian cinema knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming uh, to us, coming to us, yes, that sounds about right. (laughs) All over you, I'm coming all (laughs) over this place. Coming to us from L.A., our resident Sony employee, it is... Coming in your ears, it's Tim, yeah, from Los Angeles, hanging out with my buddy Jameson and Elisha Craig, drinking it up in a glass of ice. It is great. How are you, Matt? I'm I'm good. I'm actually going to try something. I I, uh, I have a beer guy, as as you know. <laughs> and are, are we, we going to phone him in right me. now? I'm sorry. Or are you going to like call him and he's going to deliver? He's going to be like the mailman. From those early <laughs> British, you know, Saturday morning shows. Oh, it's Mr. Tompkins dropping off my package. How are you doing, Mr. Tompkins? Well, Eliza, I'm okay. No, nothing, nothing as uh, elaborate as all that. No, um, so my beer guy gave me a Coney Island Brewing Company hard root beer. Oh, and I like this little tagline here. It's you know, I mean, as if as if we didn't have enough uh, double entendre going on here with hard root beer. It says, "Are you tall enough to ride?" Well, I guess we'll find out. I'm going to. Uh, it, it definitely smells tasty. I want to try this out here. Will Matt spit out the hard root beer, or will he take it like a man? Oh, this is actually damn fine stuff. Let me tell you. Damn fine stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think it's almost better. I don't know. I think I'm going to have to do a side-by-side comparison now because of my affinity for all things St. Arnold. I usually take their Santo, and I do uh, three or two-thirds Santo, one-third St. Arnold root beer. Oh. And I do that in a pint glass and oh it is it is heaven heaven and this is just really really good well i will say the, that this, saint this arnold, coney island is really good though i gotta say saint arnold does have damn fine good root beer in fact i went with a bunch actually the last and only time i've gone to saint arnold was about four years ago now and i was there with two other buddies of mine 
and we walk in we're like oh god we're going to we're going to be able to taste like five different four or five different beers it's going to be delicious so we all go up we you know we each have four and on our last beer i order the santo on draft and the other one orders the Alyssa on draft and my other friend taylor he orders the root beer on draft thinking that it wasn't literally just plain old root beer but he got it he drank it he complained for a second until he took his second sip and he realized the deliciousness of St. Arnold root beer. And that mixing with my favorite beer of theirs, which is the Santo, I must say that sounds damn fine delicious. And I'm a little bit jealous right now. <laughs> oh, no, I, I'm telling you, yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm already almost done with this beer. And it's only 5.8%. So that's not bad. So is it one of those like big bottles or is it just a regular nah, old... just a 12-ounce bottle. Just a regular old 12-ounce bottle. Well, them Coney Island boys, they don't know how to properly brew their or bottle their root beer, alcoholic beverage. More bang for your buck, I'd say, if you put it in a big old 5-liter bottle. Maybe. Hey, I can't complain. I mean, this is it's not like I've paid for this, so... But can we actually have your beer guy show up on the show? Does he have a British accent? Is he English? No, no. Oh, he is He is straight up good old boy. Like, L- let me tell you. Trailer good old boy? Or like, my name is Michael. He would get up, the, he would get up there. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm mass beer guy. That, that's what I'm talking about. I got him that Coney Island stuff last week. It was good. Oh, is there a little bit of a Cajun flair he's, in that oh, dialect okay. as well? I, I love this guy. He's, he's awesome. Does he have one of those uh, trucks with, with a bed cover on it, like the shell on the back, and you walk in and, well, what do you want today, Matt? And he opens it up, and it lights up as the tailgate comes down, and you have your various brews to choose from. Because, I mean, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> no, it sounds very mystic whenever you tell us about your beer guy. It is, um, it is far less exciting than that. I, I must say, I... I don't know if I want to spoil the magic. Do you really want? Do you really want the inner workings exposed of this magical relationship? I I mean, I didn't have it built up too much in my mind. So please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he he basically we when we're at work, he's uh, I'll uh, we'll be talking about whatever. I'll start heading out to my car for something to take a delivery or to go whatever and he just walks out and he's like oh yeah I got something for you and here you go or he's like here you go there's more of this that I that that I know that you like and then gives me something whatever so yeah so he illegally Pretty traffics he just beer goes and grabs it out of his vehicle and just hands it to so him. he traffics beer during work hours mm-hmm mm-hmm I mean it, uh yeah, pretty much. <laughs> now, in 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 defense of any perceived illegal activity happening, uh, all all bottled beer or canned beer remains sealed at all times because he's he's a beer guy. So you you have to take it warm so that which is which is how you're supposed to transport beer. You should always transport beer warm because if you chill beer. And then allow it to come back up to room temperature and then, or warmer, depending on where it's being stored, and then chill it again. It has an adverse effect on the flavor. So, 
Well, what's better? There is no there is no consuming of any kind of alcoholic beverage while we are working. What what is better out of these two? Either taking it warm or giving it warm. Do you want to take it warm or do you want to give it warm? Well, when you're putting that kind of connotation on it, I'm going to choose option C, which is runaway screaming. <laughs> You don't want any of my warmth? <laughs> not gonna have I it. Not. You're not gonna have it. All right, Dana Carvey. Oh, man. Circa 1990. 19 the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, now that we have officially killed about eight minutes oh. here. Yeah, oh, my name um, is Tim. I guess I could say my name is Tim. Um, I work at I think you said your name was Tim. Sony? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we, got, yes. we, we did that. Um, yeah. Were we missing anything else based off this, you know, early banter on a film podcast where we're talking out about beer and <laughs> uh nope. Let's see. Twitter handles um at the SLS cast and our email is at is at nothing. What the fuck? It's not at anything because it's an email. It's the show at SLScast.com. It is so. at something. We are at the SLScast. Yeah, but we don't start at, you know, we don't start with at like a fucking Twitter handle. It's the show at SLScast.com. Anyway, I think that's it. So uh, what do you say? Do you want to go ahead and jump right into the news, sir? Do you think with how pop culture is now, people will start calling their love handles Twitter handles? Or start getting those things confused. Oh, don't grab my Twitter handle. I mean, love handle. <laughs> it's it's pop culture. No? Uh, yeah, news sounds great. Yeah, carry on. Here we go, folks. It's the news. First up from me is uh, from the HollywoodReporter.com, better known as HollywoodReporter.com. Box office milestone, Minions crosses $1 billion. This comes to us by way of Pamela McClintock. The movie is only the third animated title in history to hit that mark, while Universal becomes the first studio to boast $3 billion babies in a given year. The other two movies that uh, did that were Furious 7 with $1.51 billion and Jurassic World, which is at $1.628 billion to date. Now, again, we're not, you know, of course, we're still not adjusting for inflation or anything, but adjusting for inflation or not, a billion dollars, that's, that's a pretty good uh, chunk of change. Um Holy crap. And it, I don't know it it wasn't that good of a movie for me. So I'm I am legitimately surprised. Has any of Universal's movies lived up to their box office intake? Like uh, I I think I think you could argue that Jurassic World has. Really? Yes. Really? <laughs> bastard (laughs) (laughs) and and just uh to note the only other animated titles that have crossed one billion are disney's frozen of course pixar's toy story 3 did you know that if you take the song let it go from frozen and i only got this from watching the john oliver show on hbo 
mm-hmm. uh, and you you transfer those lyrics into a different language and then translate that translation back to English. I forget what the what the language is you had to translate to, then translate back from was, but let it go translates to give up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get it. It's yeah. it's opposite of women's rights and all that. My news <laughs> from ropeofsilicon.com, which unfortunately Rope of Silicon as of a couple weeks ago has gone offline completely. However, one of his very last articles pertains to Nicolas Cage, which is even more props to him. I mean, why not end on a high note as this? From ropeofsilicon.com, this is written by Will Ashton, and this was actually posted uh, a couple weeks ago. Nicolas Cage names his favorite performances Bash's Modern Film Criticism. That's right. I've made my affections for Nicolas Cage no secret on this website, says the author. It's a love ironic and not. I truly believe the actor can command a strong performance when given a chance. Even today, despite the rantings of those who believe otherwise, I'll point to Joe in the first kick-ass to back my case. Even when he's bad, though, his odd fixture usually remains alluring. And the article goes on from there. His most insane performances, from The Wicker Man to Vampire's Kiss, are not always celebrated, but they're sure as hell remembered. And that's the case for the actor as well. Talking to Time about his filmography while promoting his aforementioned new political drama, the kookier and more emotionally demanding roles are the ones he's considering his pride and joy. Specifically, he points towards Bad Lieutenant, Portocal, New Orleans, Leaving Las Vegas, Face Off, and the previously mentioned Vampire's Kiss as his personal favorites. His reasoning for each, it goes as follows. Quote, I thought that Werner Herzog and I got up to something special in Bad Lieutenant, Certainly Mike Figgis and I found something pretty emotionally naked in leaving Las Vegas. I was very happy with Vampire's Kiss, which in my opinion was almost like an independent laboratory to start realizing some of my more expressionic dreams with film performance. Then using what I had learned in Vampire's Kiss and putting it into a very big action movie in the form of Face Off with John Woo. If you look at those two movies back-to-back, that's Face Off and Vampire's Kiss, you can see where I stole from my performance in Vampire's Kiss. End quote. Considering Figgis' movie got the man an Oscar, it's certainly not surprising to hear him champion the film and his work inside it. Bad Lieutenant has some of his most unhinged moments as a professional actor, and considering the final product actually turned out good opposed to, say, Deadfall. There's some logic to be gleaned from there, too. Face-Off is one of the actor's most radically unfazed offerings, and its over-the-top style fits the tone of his performances, even if it's not really all that great of a movie. I disagree with that. Vampire's Kiss, though, is the surprising one, at least for me. And to wrap this up here, I can see his performance in the dark comedy propelling into the work we know full well from the actor, But the confused tone and unevenness of his acting there would make you think he'd be more embarrassed than proud of what he created. But what do I know, though? 
This is Cage we're talking about here. And truth be told, I've never seen Vampire's Kiss in its entirety. I'm planning to prepare myself accordingly when I do decide to finally watch it one of these days, especially if it's among the man's favorite cinematic blessings. End all quotes there. What do you think, Matt? Do you have any comments, questions, or concerns for anybody's mental health? Nope. Seemed like a very good article. Although, uh, with the exception of Vampire's Kiss, I, I, while I can appreciate that film, I don't necessarily think that's exactly a good I will have to say, I too have never seen Vampire's Kiss. I too oh, I being me and very, the... yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a very good movie, but um, I guess I can appreciate it. I don't, I don't know. Are there vampires in it? Mm, no, if I remember correctly, that's the Nick Cage movie where he thinks he's turning into a vampire. Is there kissing in the movie? Perhaps. Well. Good job selling the movie to me, Matt. God damn. All right. Well, next up for me from geek.com by way of Dave Gonzalez. Nielsen is finally using data from Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu streaming. That's right. Now, I know this isn't directly related to movies per se, but it's will this will definitely go into how Netflix and Amazon and Hulu will ultimately start shaping the way they do their programming, which could mean more movies instead of shows coming from Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. The idea here is that Netflix and Amazon and the, and those of that ilk do not uh, do not share their they don't share their data publicly in in terms of what gets viewed and what does not because they're not beholden to anybody for that information. They're only looking at the subscriber information as a whole. They can use their own internal metrics to determine whether or not something is successful enough to warrant future episodes. But Nielsen has finally found a way to tap into that. Now they can't get, they can't follow people who are, for example, doing streaming on their mobile devices but they can tap into people who are watching actually on their tvs and at their computers so the thing though is that with this new data they're actually going to be able to tell whether or not a show like house of cards is a better bet for original programming than a licensing deal for straight-to-video movies or just other movie packages themselves. So the question is, is this really good or bad? Personally, I think the age of Nielsen has long since passed because people have been streaming for seven or eight years now and i mean streaming like primarily and nielsen is just so ridiculously behind the times and nielsen is only getting almost 1000 shows across all the services they they literally even took 
multiple years before they started adding DVR numbers in any kind of meaningful way. Which is also something that the article points out. So here you are, you have this completely antiquated technology that is just completely miles behind where anybody really is that causes good TV shows and other things to fail based on marketing and advertising dollars. And now it's trying to belatedly get into a limited aspect in terms of Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. And it, and it's going to and it's and it could very well affect your favorite shows that are Netflix only shows or your favorite Amazon only shows. It could also end up affecting the way the movie distribution deals are done online because of the way that the revenue streams are going to work. Personally, I think Nielsen just pretty much needs to go away. But what do you think, Tim? Is this a good idea, bad idea? Does it matter? Will it affect movies? Will it be more just TV shows? What do you think? If anything. I think this piece of news was very inconsiderate of you, to be honest, because the actor, Leslie Nielsen, passed away five years ago, goddammit. <laughs> and, no. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I do think this is going to be one of those things that's going to slowly kind of die off over time. I'm not talking about Leslie Nielsen. I'm talking about the Nielsen. It's like a TV show. The Nielsen's. <laughs> the Nielsen numbers or whatever. Nielsen ratings. Nielsen ratings. Even Th- that. Those two. Yes, those yes, two. Those two. Yeah, because it's, I mean, there, there is so much stuff out there that it's kind of out of everybody's hands. If any device, if any platform is able to make their own original content whether it be a movie or TV show or documentaries now, they will regardless of their ratings. I mean, look at Amazon, look at Netflix. I mean, Amazon, they had a couple series that failed, and it hasn't been until this year that they actually started coming out with a couple hits. However, they didn't need the Nielsen ratings to tell them if their shows sucked. They can just read the reviews or actually look at social media or even just check out all the write-ups about how shitty Zombieland the TV show was. And they can also look at their own metrics to see that only 10,000 people watched it. Yeah, that too. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, there's just so much stuff out there that you cannot regulate. Uh, You can't go off of uh, just one single thing as the Nielsen ratings. Well... There you go. Now, uh, do you do you have something about security in cinema, Tim, that you wanted to get to? <laughs> I do. Oh, <laughs> oh. Well, you should you should totally do that. Oh, well then. Uh, from cinemablend.com, how much money moviegoers are willing to pay for increased security? This is written by Eric Eisenberg, and this is actually an article from a couple weeks ago. And in fact, as I say that, I'm pretty sure I have the actual... No, I don't. The actual article. Do I? I do. But I guess it's safe to say that I found this article via Cinema Blend. However, uh, I'm just going to read off the actual Variety article, which is, Study, nearly half of moviegoers will pay extra for theater security, and this was a Variety exclusive until Cinema Blend got a hold of it. 
Again, this is from a couple weeks ago, and it says this, written by Brent Lang. In the wake of two violent attacks on movie theaters, nearly half of ticket buyers say that they are willing to pay more to improve security at multiplexes. However, their appetite for shouldering the extra costs that come with installing metal detectors and armed security guards lessens as the price tag grows higher. While 48% are fine with paying $1 or more for the additional measures, only 23% said that they would pay $2 or more, according to a new survey by consumer research firm C4. Quote, moviegoers are telling us that they're starting to see the value of security, end quote, said Ben Spurgle, executive vice president of Consumer Insights at C4. Quote, hopefully they're beginning to value it the same amount that they value IMAX or 3D, where they recognize that you have to pay more for a better experience. You may also have to pay more for a safer experience, end quote. C4 did a similar poll on theater safety following the train wreck shooting, but this is the first time it has checked in with the moviegoers since the Nashville incident. To get its results, the company surveyed 500 moviegoers from August 6th to August 7th. The study has a margin of error of 5% to 6%. Following the latest attacks, however, respondents have demonstrated a greater willingness to pay more for added security, Only 13% of respondents said that they would pay $3 extra for security after the first attack, but that climbed to 19% after the second violent incident in as many weeks. The two attacks have sparked debate about the need for greater safety precautions in the country's theaters, yada, 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 it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, Last weekend, security concerns surrounded straight out of Compton prompted Universal to say that it would foot the bill for extra measures at theaters that felt they were at risk. Uh, Yada, yada, yada. And that's pretty much it right there. It goes on to compare uh, safety on an airplane that people are willing to pay extra and not really complain about an airplane price due to the extra security value tacked onto it. However, I don't think people really understand how much they are paying for airplane security since the price to fly on a plane has kind of always been somewhat a little bit expensive, unless you fly Southwest, which Southwest is an excellent airline to fly. But uh, that's besides the point. So yeah, Matt, what do you think about this? Are you are you willing to pay extra money to go and see a movie and it be a safe experience? And before you uh, answer that, it depends on the movie theater. Out here, we have two different movie theaters. There are the affordable movie theaters and there are the movie theaters. You basically, that is where you go to see a movie if you want to be guaranteed a good experience which is the Arclight movie theaters out here. You pay 17 bucks to go see a movie. By God, not only should you have a great movie experience, but you should also have that security already in play because you are paying 17 bucks to go see a movie. Now, the problem I have with this is when you go to a movie theater like an AMC, for example, where you never know exactly what you are going to get. If I am guaranteed that my seat will not have cum stains all over it, and that my screen is not torn in half, or the projection will not crap out halfway through, I wouldn't mind paying an extra $1 or an extra $2 to see that movie. But I better be guaranteed everything else will be up to snuff as well. 
And that is really my only complaint or two cents that I will put towards this whole thing. Matt, what do you, what do you say about this? Well, <clears throat> let me just uh, tack on this article here and then I will make my comments here. Also from the, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Folder from vulture.com uh, by way of Sean Fitzgerald. Regal Cinemas will start checking all of your bags now. Regal Cinemas, the nation's largest movie theater chain, announced it's beginning to search ticket buyers' bags before letting them in, according to multiple reports. The move comes on the heels of an uptick in movie theater shootings, as well as the release of a survey that found roughly half of moviegoers interviewed wanted more security. Quote, security issues have become a daily part of our lives in America, end quote, the company said in a statement, quote, to ensure the safety of our guests and employees, backpacks and bags of any kind are subject to inspection prior to admission. We acknowledge that this procedure can cause some inconvenience and that it is not without flaws, but hope these are minor in comparison to increased safety, end quote. As Entertainment Weekly notes, it's unclear whether the new policy will come with a ticket price hike, the survey indicated that many people would be okay with a small additional fee. A manager at a Florida location confirmed with news site Local 6 that this is a new corporate security policy. So that's the article from Vulture there, which, of course, I believe is referencing your article there. And as I, as I let off with, that's right, uh, from the I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Guys, look. I, if, if you guys have listened to this show for any length of time, you know that I am a huge personal responsibility kind of person. And when you sacrifice freedom for security, you're sacrificing freedom for security. I'm not advocating that any, that, that any bad thing that happens to a good person is okay. It's not. When bad people do bad things, fuck them you know, burn them, don't give a fuck. That's great. The bad guys need to go into hell and everything else. But there is there there will always be a degree of risk in anything you do in your life. Just like the old adage goes, oh, you could walk off the street corner tomorrow and get hit by a bus. So we don't line buses with you know, bubble wrap. We don't have people walk around in insulated bubble balls to protect them from that. We have to draw a line somewhere. Yes, people want to feel safe when they go places. And yes, there's nothing wrong with security and stuff like that. But by God, when you're walking into a movie theater and you have to get searched, walk through metal detectors and have your purses and stuff, I mean, it's it's just too much. It's too much. And... At what point do you simply draw the line and say, well, fuck it. I'm just not leaving my house ever again. <clears throat> I, I don't agree with these moves, with either one of these moves at all. I think they're stupid. I, I, I think they are heavy-handed, uh, and I think they are grossly reactionary and do not address the problem whatsoever. Uh, it's just stupid stuff that makes people who live their lives in fear feel better. That is my personal opinion. Feel free to disagree. Send all hate mail to the show at slscast.com. Or or just Matt at gmail.com would be fine as well. <laughs> there you go. And I and, and I think we need that that should, that should be where we cut the news.
there. All opinions expressed by Matt are, do not directly reflect those of Jameson, uh, uh, the other whiskey that he's been drinking, and I'm kidding. Uh, actually, well, there's there's definitely one piece of news that I do want to mention because it, w- it would be criminal not to mention it. We lost a couple people uh, within the past week. The first one here, Wes Craven, who passed away from complications with brain cancer at the age of 76. We will be talking about him more in depth uh, next week during our segment three. Uh, But he did pass away. Today is August 31st. He passed away yesterday, August 30th. Again, he's been suffering from brain cancer and he uh, passed away due to that. Unlike where Matt and I had a miscommunication yesterday, and I kept referring to Wes Craven as Wes Anderson, and Matt kept denying his death. (laughs) Oh, But yes, him passing away is absolutely horrible. But also the second death, Austrian actor Peter Kern, this is from thehollyreporter.com, Peter Kern, the last of the auteur dinosaurs, dies at 66, he acted in more than 70 films, including ones from Rainer Werner, Fassbender, and Wim Wenders, and directed dozens of his own. Peter Kern, an Austrian actor who was a major force in the new German cinema movement of the 1970s and was an, an outspoken gay rights activist at a time when there were few, died this week. He was 66 years old, um, and this is from last Friday, August 28th. In its obituary on Kern German newspaper, the Süddeutsche Zentug called him, quote, the last of the auteur dinosaurs, end quote, a filmmaker who struck to the purest of cinema concept of 1970s German art house and never went commercial. At his peak, Kern worked with the best directors of his era, including Rainer Werner Fassbinder, Hans Jürgen Siegberger, and Wim Wenders, uh, who did Wrong Move, he twice won Germany's top film honor, the Film Prize in Gold, for Werner's Wrong Move in 1975, and in 1978 for two performances as the lead in Walter Bachmeiner's Flaming Hearts and as part of the ensemble in Seeberger's seven-hour experimental epic Hitler, a film from Germany. Creatively, Kern was very much in Seerbegger's camp, believing cinema should be a, quote, Gesmatkevek, end quote, a unified work of art from a single creative vision. In his own films as a director, Kern wrote and directed some two dozen features and documentaries, often playing the starring role himself. His final film, The Last Summer of the Rich, premiered at the Berlin Film Festival in February. So again, that was Austrian actor Peter Kern, known as the last of the auteur dinosaurs who passed away at the age of 66. And again, Wes Craven passed away at the age of 76. We will be talking about him more next week. So that is my news. All right. Well, that does conclude the news and brings us to... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim discuss... Bring it on, 15 years later. Where have all the cheery teen movies gone? From Collider.com By Brian 
formal. And now, discussions with Matt and Tim. Yes. Thank you, weird announcer dude. All right, so we've got this article. It is by Brian Formo. comes to us from Collider.com. Again, bring it on. 15 years later, where have all the cheery teen movies gone? Now, uh, this is kind of a socio-political breakdown, inadvertently, um, of the movie Bring It On, but it does go on to make a bigger point of where are these happy-go-lucky teen movies that used to exist? They were they were all over the place in the 80s and the 90s, and in the very early 2000s, up to about 2005, they were still prevalent at least once a year. I mean, for me, I thoroughly enjoyed movies like The New Guy. Uh, of course, you again, you do have Bring It On and, and, and what have you. But the... I think... What the what the author misses in this article, because the author goes into two different things that really do it, that, that really have kind of announced the death knell, if you will, of the teen movie, the, the happy-go-lucky teen movie, a la Clueless, a la Bring It On, and so what have you. And these two things are, one, teens today understand the world a lot better than they did back then, and are less prone to be as happy-go-lucky as they were back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, even though teens, especially in the 90s, were always angsty. That was the whole point of shows like Freaks and Geeks and movies like 10 Things I Hate About You. But, but, but that's apparently neither here nor there, according to the article. The other side of this is that uh, with the worldwide... Uh, cinema scope that we have it's much more difficult to get teen lingo from the states to translate in a, in a global market and so and as that is what movie studios are primarily focused on we now have the the dual-sided nature of this well i have to say that i disagree on both fronts firstly um, kids still have all of those things. There are still cliques in high school. Uh, those things, are all, they have existed in, since time immemorial, okay? Um, but they have evolved, certainly. And, and, of course, with the advent of technology, they have evolved uh, in, in leaps and bounds in the last 10 years. But they still exist. And I think that it just takes the right director to be able to tell that story. I think as we see younger uh, directors move into up-and-coming fields, we will probably get to see a smart teen comedy. On the other side of that, with the global thing, I think they're also missing out on the fact that the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon have more or less supplanted that need for the teen movie because they have all of the happy-go-lucky stuff or all of the technological stuff and the click stuff and the, and the quirky stuff covered in 30-minute films. And, 
of course, over the last decade, we've seen the high school musicals. We currently have movies like The Descendants and stuff that are available uh, through Disney Channel and what have you. And then, of course, you had in the last few years, you had shows like iCarly and stuff on Nickelodeon. These shows basically provide that entertainment. And I think that it is those two things that have really given the reason why we don't have the, you know, cheery teen movies that Mr. Formo is lamenting in his article. So, I don't know, uh, Tim, what, what was your opinion? This was your article? This was your idea? First off, I disagree with you. I know, I hate to start off with that, but unless I'm misunderstanding you, and I hope I am, but I cannot find myself to compare a lot, like iCarly and a lot of like Disney or Nickelodeon shows, to what people are are missing out of, of, of these like cheery teen movies. Because they're two totally different things, and I, I understand to a point, I know you were exposed to more of the stuff on Disney and Nickelodeon now because of your kiddos and whatnot. But I, I think it also, the, with the nostalgia factor with a lot of these cheery teen movies, like Bring It On or 10 Things I Hate About You and all those other ones, is how they, they handled those high school stereotypes and how they kind of broke the barriers of the stereotypes and how they went about kind of showing those stereotypes and all these movies and like what made some of these movies charming or a lot of these 90s teen cheery movies charming is that they all were kind of in a way the same movie but they weren't and a lot of them how they dealt with the issue of sex and angst and clicks they did in a way that wasn't really crass as you see in a lot of like Seth Rogen or just rated R comedies of today that you pretty much see if, if if any movie is a comedy and pertaining to anything remotely like these cheery teen movies it's pretty much rated r only because you don't even see movies like these anymore period at least in this particular package but i just really don't understand what you mean by you get the same stuff from these movies in uh, in sure. like no, I, I get it. Yeah, from Disney stuff. Channel and Nickelodeon. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so let me let let me uh, go to the article, if I may. Please do. <laughs> Why are there no more breezy, bubbly films with teens worried about grades, crushes, and the odor of their teeth? Because you have shows like iCarly and Live and Maddie. That's why. Because you have movies made for TV movies like High School Musical and Teen Beach. Because you have other avenues to pursue that entertainment. But they're all so bad. I, that's the <laughs> point, though. That, that it's, it has been okay. supplanted. It I has see what you supplanted. mean. As, you're, not, you're not necessarily siding with saying... Oh, I'm not oh, trying to is... say that it's quality entertainment. I'm not okay. trying to say that the vacuum that was filled was filled with good content. I'm just saying that the vacuum was filled. Oh, I see now. Okay, I, I was I am, concerned. That's what it's not. That, it's not that it didn't. It's not that it didn't go anywhere. It's that it did go somewhere, and the article is not addressing that. 
Right. That that oh, is okay. what I'm saying. No, High School Musical is not a good movie. Teen Beach and Teen Beach Two, which I am literally subjected to. I want you to understand that word, subjected, because it's terrible. It's terrible. But my wife and my kid eat that shit up. Your wife eats oh that shit god, up. Oh my god, yes. She's such a nerd with that stuff. I mean, I fully, it, I fully embrace. You know, I'm the fat nerd who likes, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek and geeky shit. That's fine. She's the nerd who likes the fucking high school musical stuff. But the thing is, is that being the guy who accepts Star Wars and stuff, you know, in in his 30s, is more accepted than a grown woman who loves high school musical. In fact, I (laughs) I, I didn't really realize that was a thing. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody had to like Zach Efron. Somebody, there, there had to be a reason for the the, the paper boy to happen <laughs> for our life. amusement. That's yeah. why. So, oh, no, man. but seriously. So that that's Pee what I'm getting me. at. I, please don't misunderstand. I am not trying to say that 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 stuff is necessarily quality, but that that is where that went. Right. Okay. Well, in that regard, I definitely agree with you. So I'm I'm glad we got that shit cleared up so what i really liked what i thought was very interesting about bring it on and all those movies is that that was considered the second golden age of teen movies because i think what really how that got that title i suppose is because a lot of the teen movies in the 80s dealt with being accepted in 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 their own way and then in the 90s a lot of the teen movies kind of branched out from there just just a scotch or two which is the whole idea of the boundaries coming down and them kind of exploring different cliques and whatnot and so i'm just kind of like kind of go through this article a little bit a little bit which i think for the most part other than what matt uh mentioned that they left out is kind of interesting and you can tell that this guy is ankle-deep in nostalgia when it comes to this stuff, which is kind of interesting, Brian. It's kind of interesting. A few things here. He mentions that Bring It On, that it's a it's a spry, witty, mildly risque, blessed to be carefree, and both aware and accepting of young sexuality without ever being crass. But there are intellectual extractions that come from rewatching Bring It On Today. Mostly it comes from examining what is no longer present in modern film, the high school comedy. Now, the 80s were largely about secret crushes and the many attempts to get laid, and the 90s teen flick expanded a little to goofball portraits of separate communal tribes within high schools and provided guides of how to negotiate all those cliques. But what makes Bring It On especially unique is that even though it creates new vernaculars and props up a pyramid of jokes, it also acknowledges the unofficial schooling segregation between the haves and have-nots, and it extends its bubble from an affluent, mostly white neighborhood in San Diego to a dominantly black and Latino high school in Compton. In, and I guess in all quotes He's absolutely right. What a lot of these teen movies did is that it took a general problem that a lot of high schools and a lot of people in these suburban type high schools can relate to and in a way integrated that into their own story. And like what they were talking about, bring it on. You have the affluent suburban, uh, I forgot what the school is called, Rancho Grande or something. They were the Toros. I remember that. 
And then they were going up against the East Compton cheerleading squad. And that was something that, you know, at the time in 2000, that was kind of a thing that was happening, especially with cheerleading at the time. Trust me, I can go into all that in depth, but we do not have the time. And I just know way too much about that shit than I absolutely need to. Due to personal experience, my sister was in all that shit and yada, yada, yada. It was 2000. I mean, it was 2000. I'll just go with that. But on top of not necessarily social satire, but everything that the movie uh, or, or what the movie touched on within society, it also had a lot of wit behind it that made the movie enjoyable. And this isn't just about Bring It On. I mean, this wasn't the only movie that did this type of thing. A slew of other movies did as well. For example, Mean Girls. And so that's what made these movies, to me at least, entertaining. And the article says here, uh, a little further in, Bettinger and Reed, the producer, or I think the, the, the writer and director, Peyton Reed, who actually directed Ant-Man, for example, navigate the social justice of the film with a natural and unpreachy subtlety that perhaps couldn't be done in a teen film today. And that is because anything regarding race and culture nowadays has to be PC. Regardless of if the movie is supposed to be subtle about racism or subtle about all this stuff, about uh, you know social justiceness unpreachy subtleties you just can't do that nowadays due to the content in self and i think this also adds to the nostalgic factor of these cheery teen movies is because you got a lot of different levels i mean there's a lot of different levels within some of these movies and of course not all of them are great there are a lot of really shitty ones but they have this charm to them that makes them enjoyable for the most part. What I also liked about the article, and this is the last thing I'll touch on because I know I'm probably getting a little long-winded here, is that it talks about teen cinema of today. To where before you had the wittiness, the the sly humor, and the social commentary as well, nowadays teen cinema is serious. What it says here in the article, quote, when there was at least one PG-13 high school romp released a month, and there were even more hitting the video shells each week. However, now there's only young adult cinema, which largely puts the fate of a collapsed world in the hands of a teen to save. And I find that very interesting, because it's true. You know, not only is it about the... uh, you know, the world gone to shit and a, and a teen has to save that said world or government or whatever. It's either the vampires. And if you look at, say, Twilight in the Insurgent series or the Hunger Games or even the Scorched, Tri- the Maze Runner, uh, you know, whatever series that is, they're all trilogies. They're all big budget movies. And unfortunately, studios want big budget teen movies. And you're not going to see a trilogy of bring it on movies however there have been three direct video bring it on movies you will not see that at the movie theater and that's what movie studios want that's what universal wants that's what fox wants that's what paramount wants that's probably even what my studio wants you know we want movies that will sell 
And a lot of these movies nowadays, since we're relying on a foreign market, we're relying on box office intake from Japan, like what Matt was saying with Minions, Japan helped us with that $1 billion mark, or helped Universal with that $1 billion mark. We're not going to see that with movies like Bring It On, or 10 Things I Hate About You, or Dead Man on Campus, or a lot of those teen-driven films. So that is why it is important for these movie studios to have three Hobbit movies, you know, to have the Hunger Games movies, to have the Insurgent movies, because that is a for sure sell, because it's already based on a property that did so well and has already an established fan base, which would be, you know, their perspective, young adult, yaw, novels. So... I think in a way, this is a very good article, and, and believe it or not, there are many articles like this as well, and that relies heavy on the nostalgia factor, especially. All right, well then, I guess there's nothing left to do but say, well, no, I'm not going to say anything. We're going to bring back a weird announcer guy who is then going to say... Thus concludes another edition of Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next time, for the bonus segment, there will be a retrospective of the films by Wes Craven to celebrate the life and works of Wes Craven. Thank you for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. And without further ado, we now have the movies. Uh, this week we have uh, Cop Car. 71 and Being Flynn. Cop Car and 71 were VOD and Being Flynn was on Netflix. Where do you want to start, sir? How about Being Flynn? Being Flynn. All right. So, Being Flynn, Robert De Niro, Paul Dano. This is about a father and a son who are very much estranged and yet very much tied together by their life's passions. Um, They come across each other briefly before uh, really having to deal with each other at a homeless shelter where Paul Dano, uh, or Dano, is, as the young Nick Flynn, is working, and Robert De Niro, as his father Jonathan Flynn, finds himself needing to stay at. Um... They have they 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 both definitely have their issues. They both are definitely brilliant in their own way, and it's an interesting exercise in both the elemental bonds of father and son, even when those bonds are just the smallest bit of sinew. And what can bring people together and drive them apart? I have to say, this movie... This is a movie that definitely 
is very well acted and has definitely great performances in terms of uh, the characters being portrayed by Robert De Niro and Paul Dano, and for a for a smaller role, even for Julianne Moore, who actually plays um, Nick's mother. Um, the problem is, is that, and this is really the thing that hurt the movie for me, is that they become so self. The, the writing itself gets belabored and bogs itself down by trying to be intelligent and trying to be more than it needs to be. Now, I'm not saying that the characters were wrong for espousing the writing that they were writing. I mean, that's the whole that's kind of the idea. These uh two guys are trying to be writers. But we've kind of gone past a certain point now in the evolution of writing and the way people see the written word that the type of eloquence used is more browbeating than intellectual prowess. And I really and truly feel that Paul, uh, Paul White's who did the screenplay, I I feel that he missed that. That's, it's just my personal opinion, and I think it really bogs it down. I believe this would have been a five-star movie otherwise, but it becomes a four-star movie for me for that reason. So there you go. What do you got, Tim? You know, I think that this was a one-man show uh, for the most part, and that one man was Robert De Niro. And he's been, I mean, you see Rob De Niro pop up in a lot of movies, and not just as a supporting actor, but as one of the leading men. But this is the first movie in a while where I guess he shares top billing with Paul Dano, but he comes out on top most definitely. Because this is not a very strong film, but De Niro himself pulls all of the weight. He gives an absolutely commanding performance that no other aspect of the film can live up to. This is coming from somebody who is a Paul Dano fan. I mean, ever since There Will Be Blood, I've always followed the guy, and I've seen him in all of his indie flicks, and I've always thoroughly enjoyed his performances. But this film, I just don't think he was necessarily right for the role. And I don't think it was necessarily his fault, but I thought it was Paul Weitz's fault in particular. Because Paul Weitz, he directed a couple really good movies about a boy, which is one that I really liked. But lately, he's had a big problem with balancing comedy and drama and everything in between. Because in this movie, you have the comedy that doesn't really gel well with the drama and the drama that at times doesn't gel with the comedy, especially when one happens... You know, if, if, if the comedy and the drama are, are in the same hand or happen right after one another. Until you get to the last act of the movie, which the best part of the movie, which I feel is the only reason worth watching this movie is for the last act, is when it becomes practically straight drama. Which that is when the characters, the real characters and the real performances all around come out. Especially Paul Dano's when he has to be at the same level as 
Robert De Niro, because that's when the two characters have to compete with one another. But again, like I said, Dano, not his best film. He took a backseat to De Niro, and uh, his character felt more like a caricature at times, and again, I kind of thought he was miscast. But that could also be attributed to the directing, which was very uneven. Unfortunately, I have to give this one three stars. I owe it all to De Niro. From the beginning of the film to the end, he is commanding and the absolute best. So I recommend it for De Niro fans for sure. Right on, right on. Where do you want to go from here, sir? Hmm. Which one did you like the most out of Cop Car and 71? 71. 71? Let's go with 71. (laughs) Okay. Uh, 71, 2014 British historical action film set in Northern Ireland. Ireland. Um, let's see here. It stars Jack O'Connell, Richard Dormer, Sean Harris, Sam Reed, Charlie Murphy, Paul Anderson, and Paul Popplewell. Um, this is basically the story of a young, of a young British army man by the name of Gary Hook, who is sent to Belfast in 1971 during the early years of the Troubles, which is the when the British Army was getting involved in the uh, Catholics versus Protestants spat. That I say spat. That's a terrible word. Because I mean, war uh, is what it really was. Um, that raged for many years, and in some aspects, still continues to this day. Um, and. He is separated from his troop uh, or his unit and it has to basically attempt to survive in very hostile territory. And all of the things that go down where he's meeting with different factions of the IRA that he's having to deal with. He's got Catholics who are against him and uh, Protestants uh, in different zones and everything. Um, He's dealing with all of these different factions and people who are hating each other over ideological differences and how all these factions are trying to work it so that they, with their machinations, so that they can come out on top. And it is definitely something where you are, I found it to be very, um, I I, thrilling is not the right word, but I will. I have to use thrilling because I it, it did have my heart racing. I mean, everything was like, "Oh my God, what the hell is going to happen now?" Which is so. I I don't mean thrilling in like a roller coaster kind of way. I mean thrilling is in like you're on the edge of your seat kind of way. Um. The only problem is this movie has such great build-up, very interesting characters, um, lots of twists and turns. You get to see kind of, you get a a peek into the political machinations of the time, and yet they are, it's kind of like they're jamming it all in so that you could see all the complexity. The problem is, is that it's a 99-minute film, and while I applaud them for trying, for not making it, you know, two and a half hours to to make room for all these different factions and all this kind of stuff, that um, it tends to kind of be overwrought because of that. And the ending for me, I w- was very unsatisfying. Um, I would have liked to see a better 
resolution after after having that kind of experience. It's still a good movie. I would definitely say that overall this is three and a half stars for me. What do you got there, Tim? Yeah, this was actually a really good movie, uh, especially for as small as the movie's budget was. And especially from it coming from a, a pretty much a first-time director by the name of Jan Demangi, or uh, Demangi, Demangi, not too sure how you pronounce it, I apologize, but it's a very interesting movie. One of the many things I found interesting about it is that the actor who played the character of Gary Hook, the actor is Jack O'Connell, We've talked about two movies that I think, Matt, you might have reviewed it similarly, similarily, oh, similarly a bit. Um, that would be... Uh, Start Up and uh, Unbroken. Yes. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, he is definitely an up-and-coming actor. You know what? I think he deserves all the great things that are coming his way because this guy knows how to lead a film like this, like Start Up, like Unbroken. One thing that I find very interesting is that he doesn't have a lot of spoken dialogue through any of these movies, which totally works for all these movies, given their content and what the story is about. But it's something very interesting, and I think it might be a surprise when we actually see him, like, when he has like a monologue in a movie, like a death scene where he monologues to the audience about how he wishes he could be alive until he ultimately dies and whatnot. But it's very interesting. Two things that made me not absolutely love this movie, which I guess on top of that, I could say this was very frustrating to watch because this is one of those movies that you think should have been great, but it was one notch down from greatness and that shit is frustrating than watching a really shitty movie like left behind that you really don't give a shit about but this movie was so close and a few tweaks could have helped it out that much and one of those things in my book is that yes the movie is a tense thriller and it had a lot of surprises in it and like it says on the poster it's riveting and it's a winner it's extraordinary but you don't need to have all that goddamn shaky camera movement to emphasize how much in peril that these characters are in. Sometimes you actually like to get a feel of what is going on than getting sick to your stomach. Now, I'm not saying that I'm used to it by now, so I didn't get sick to my stomach. But I kind of had to look away from the screen because there was just so much movement going on as he's running away. When I very much would have liked to have seen what he was doing. And with that stuff, whenever they do that shaky camera stuff with these type of movies, war movies or whatever, they're trying to evoke to the audience, trying to show the audience exactly what the character is going through. But if that's all you have to relate to them, you're not really given anything meaty to go off of other than, yes, his point of view might be shaky and all over the place. But you really don't need that to get a sense of the character. What you need as an audience member is a sense of the atmosphere, the sense of the tone, the sense of the mood. And you really need to be looking at the screen in order to take all that in. 
And the movie isn't like that the entire time. By the end of the movie, it's definitely shot very well with some minor jolts by the camera. But it's the very, the beginning. Like, when shit is going down is when all that stuff takes place. And it's a little unnerving. And to me, that you know that's kind of a big mark off the film. For my second major criticism for this movie, the story itself is a compelling story. And sometimes when you have movies like this, or movies that are trying to tell a compelling story in a very compelling way, oftentimes they either get sidetracked or they try way too hard, or maybe not even hard enough to where you really don't feel, you you feel more uncompelled than anything else. And with 71, yes, it is, like what the poster says, it's a winner, it's a riveting film, it's an extraordinary film. It's not a compelling film. And given what the character is going through, and given the story itself, like all the shit that's going on, all the horrible shit that's going on, This should have been a compelling movie. In fact, that's what it felt like it was trying to go towards, or trying to be, and really it kind of failed on that regard. And that's really all my all my criticisms. And that probably sounds absolutely horrible with the camera moving all over the place and the movie isn't as compelling as it's trying to make itself out to be. But honestly, the movie is really, really good. It's on VOD. It was, what, like seven bucks to rent it? You can watch it multiple times because you'll probably want to. I watched it a couple times because I enjoyed the movie that much. But... Sometimes with movies like these, where they're very good and they, it's easy to pick out why the movie wasn't absolutely perfect or fantastic. So I give this one 4.25 out of 5. Awesome. All right. Well, that is going to leave us with Cop Car. 2015 American Road Thriller film directed by John Watts and stars Kevin Bacon, Shay Wiggum, Cameron Mineham, um, and uh, Hayes Welford, James Friedson Jackson, uh, who are the two young boys and newcomers to cinema, as it, wa- as it were. Um, and of course, Kira Sedgwick as the dispatch lady and of course Kevin Bacon's wife so how cool is that um all right so this is something that turns into it it starts off as two boys out having a you know wild boy adventure and turns into the joyride from hell uh as (laughs) as it were with Kevin Bacon in hot pursuit uh, all right, so the movie, it's, it, there's nothing really wrong with this movie. I think it's pretty, it, it's definitely well shot. The cinematography is really, really good. Um, music, the score rather, uh, well done. Decently directed. Uh, the characters are good. Kids were, kids were fine. I just felt that they just tried. I just think that the effort, it's an A for effort. But there was just way too much effort. I think they just tried way, way too hard. And I really started feeling confused by the end of it. And also, again, without spoiling too much, just not a fan of this. Of, honestly, not a fan of the entire third act. Just leave it at that. Um, 
It's not that anybody did anything wrong. I just think that, again, they were trying too hard with this story. And while it's an interesting story, and it's definitely got levels of intrigue to it, and it's and, and it definitely starts off simply enough, I think that there could have been just... Uh, I think I think the entire third act could have been handled differently and I think could have been executed a lot better. At the end of the day, though, because the performances are so strong and the cinematography is so good and the score is where it needs to be, I still give this one a three, but it does just barely eke in at a three. So there you go. What do you got, Tim? Bring us home, sir. All righty, Cop Car. This is a 3.5 for me. I thought the kids, they did a great job. And it's fun seeing Kevin Bacon playing against type which in this film, he is the bad guy. However, you really don't know why he's the bad guy, and up until the last section, the last act of the movie, you really don't know if he is the bad guy or not. It's, in a way, it's, it's a little confusing, I guess, if you look into it too much. The movie is shot really well. I like the premise a whole lot. It has B-grade movie written all over it. The only problem is is that the movie was done so well that it's not really as fun as one would hope. It, the movie passed the time. It was worth the money uh, to rent it on VOD. If you come across it, check it out for sure, especially if it comes on Netflix anytime soon, which I'm pretty sure it will. It's definitely worth watching. But when it comes down to it, the setup of the movie just takes way too long, especially when the ending itself becomes a Western in a way. And it's easy to spoil this movie because really the meaty bits don't happen until the 45-minute mark. And that's honestly the only problem I had with this film, is that it could have been the budget, it could have been the fact that they wanted to make a 90-minute movie, and they had a good idea, but... Because of its budget, they had to stretch that idea for, you know, as, as far or as long as they could. Especially with Kevin Bacon being in it. I'm sure they had to pay a pretty pity for him. There wasn't enough meat to go throughout. And once the movie gets to that point, you know, with, with a lot of movies like this, a lot of thrillers, a lot of these fun thriller B-movie type of films... That are, that are made really well. Now, I'm not saying B-movie in a bad way, but I'm also talking about, like, Hobo with the Shotgun or Rubber or the Grindhouse movies or just, just really any uh, Zombievers or just any of that. These movies have to reach that point. Like Cabin in the Woods, for example. You think it's going to be a B-movie until the movie reaches that point and the movie carries on. And that was the problem with Cop Car is that it took them 45 minutes to actually get the ball rolling a bit. You had the great premise set up, takes a little while, kind of eating up time, and then at the one-hour mark, it gets at that point, and then 15, 20 minutes later, the movie is over. And it needed enough meat to last the entire rung of the film. And that is really my only complaint, which is actually a very big complaint. So 3.5 out of 5... For me. Matt, are you done pooping? Yes, sorry. I <laughs> I got to hit the mute button. <laughs> All right, well, that uh, definitely brings us to the end of the movies. Uh, next, week, mo- next week's movies are going to be Z for Zachariah. People, places, things, 
and Patchtown. First two are VOD again, and the second one is on, or I'm sorry, third one is on Netflix. So I think we have reached the spiel, have we not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can also send an email to the show at slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Paul Dano, I get to say this. I'd always been fascinated by people who allow themselves to be so rude and irritated and foul-mouthed and hostile, but usually you can sense there's something vulnerable beneath them, a shield they use to protect that vulnerable side. Finally, when they expose that soft spot, it's kind of touching. Talk to you guys next week. I have to pee so bad. Holy shit. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.